Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot com. Start your confidence journey today with Byte. Welcome to Money for the Rest of Us. This is a personal finance show on money, how it works, how to invest it, and how to live without worrying about it. I'm your host, David Stein. Today is episode 232. It's titled, Is it Time to Invest in Commodities? About a year ago, in December 2017, Jeffrey Gunlack, he's the founder of Double Line Capital, excellent bond manager. I invest with him in terms of my personal investing. He said on CNBC about his best investment idea of 2018, quote, I think investors should add commodities to their portfolios. You go into these massive cycles, the reputation of this is almost eerie. And so if you look at the chart, the value in commodities is historically exactly where you want it to be a buy. Then in February 2018, also on CNBC, he said, I still like commodities. I think in the late cycle, commodities always rally. In the interview, Gunlack noted that in previous commodity cycles, prices surged higher by 100%, 200%, and 400% during the latter stages of an economic cycle. He went on and said, most investors are underweighted or completely not invested in commodities because they've been so quiet, so sleepy. Commodities is my choice investment for investors to get diversified at low prices now. I was tempted after hearing his comments, but I didn't invest in commodities, except I continue to hold investments in gold. But in terms of commodity futures, I haven't invested. So what's happened? Oil prices have fallen over 30% since early October. And commodities overall, as measured by the Goldman Sachs Commodity Index, are down 5% year-to-date and down 15% since September 30th. What's happened? Well, Neil Shearing, he's the group, group chief economist at Capital Economics, he wrote, It's worth noting that the recent drop in prices is relatively small compared to past falls. It's also the case that the oil markets can be fickle. As recently as three months ago, the debate was all about whether a combination of a strong U.S. economy and sanctions on Iran would push prices back above $100. This particular sell-off is about 30%. Ned Davis Research pointed out crude oil has fallen more than 30%, 13 times, since 1982. So this volatility is normal. During the 2014 to 2016 de decline in oil, Brent oil prices fell over 70, over 70%. Seven, 
and also over 70% in 2008. In 1990, 91, in that recession, oil prices fell over 50%. And they fell over 20% or over 30% in 2012. Shearing notes that commodity prices tend to fall when there is what he says fundamental concern about the health of the global economy. So if there's concern about the economy because the the overall oil prices do fall during economic recessions and leading up to economic recessions. Why else have oil prices fallen? There was a recent article in the Wall Street Journal titled Why Oil Prices Took Such a Tumble. It's by Sarah McFarlane and Pat Menceski. They write, investors and oil traders had a sudden rethink about how much oil would be pumped into world markets in coming months. The main factors, booming U.S. output, more Iranian oil supply being available than had been expected because of U.S. sanction waivers, plus major producers, Russia and Saudi Arabia, ramping up production since the summer. The surge in supply has reversed a key trend that underpinned the oil bull camp, inventories or the amount of oil stored in tanks and on ships looking to rise again. The International Energy Agency now predicts oil inventories will exceed their five-year average in Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development countries imminently. There's too much supply and not enough demand. That's why prices go up and down, as you know. But this is... this. Is this temporary? Is oil going to rebound if we look out five to 10 years? Because if you're going to invest in commodities, is that not? We're not short-term investors. We would want to look out three, five, or 10 years. And this, I got an email from a, a member of Money for the Rest of Us Plus, a listener to the show, And he writes, how do you square master limited partnership investments with climate change? MLPs are energy infrastructure. It's oil and natural gas pipelines and storage facilities. He goes on and writes, MLPs are great diversifiers per an article by Rusty Ginn in the Best Investment Writings, Volume 2. I believe Rusty Ginn is part of Epsilon Theory. So this listener goes on and says, but I hesitate to pull the trigger on MLPs because I worry about stranded asset risk, given that we are only we only have 12 years to get off oil to keep climate change at a manageable level. I know, given your investments in Wonder Capital and the solar panels you have mentioned that you have on your house, that you are concerned about climate change. So how do you think about MLPs in that context? So we have oil and and oil futures, and we'll talk a little bit more about investing in commodities. But a second way to participate in commodities is through master limited partnerships in this oil, energy, or this energy infrastructure space. MLPs yield 8%. There is no yield when you invest in commodity futures. No, No interest income, no dividend income. But there is with master limited partnership. But he's asking... If we transition off oil or there's less demand, 
how will that impact MLPs? And how do I feel about investing in them? I have about 3 to 4% of my portfolio in master limited partnerships. In a word, I'm conflicted. I don't know. MLPs have been a disappointing investment. I've talked about it in numerous episodes, both in the regular podcast as well as in on the Plus episodes for Money for the Rest of Us Plus. MLPs are flat in terms of performance over the past year. They've returned 3.2% annualized over the past three years, so much less than what they've been yielding, but they're down negative 5.5% annualized over the past five years. In terms of climate change, I discussed that at length, my views on that from an investment standpoint in episode 140, how climate change could impact your investments and your life. We are in an energy transition. Renewables are becoming a bigger part of the energy grid. Electric vehicles, a topic we discussed earlier this year on the podcast, are becoming a bigger component of of the vehicles that are out there. One of the best writers I know on this energy transition is a gentleman named Gregor McDonald. He writes, his website is terrajoule.us, T-E-R-R-A-J-O-U-L-E.us. And he's, he's brilliant in analyzing and giving his opinion on these long-term trends. Here's what he wrote recently. A better conclusion to draw from the la- latest oil price crash is not that demand is suddenly collapsing around the world, but rather that prices above $70 were simply unsustainable given recent trends in supply and demand. Oil has been in trouble continuously since 2014, struggling to weave a pathway between, between strongly growing supply and successively emerging challenges to demand. When oil made its latest failed rally attempt, therefore, it began to press up against the ceiling at the precise moment demand growth began to slow. Yes, that's all that was required to trigger a big decline, a slight slowing of demand growth. Oil is a commodity, he writes, and commodities are shockingly sensitive to small changes in underlying conditions, especially when prices are too low, or in this case, too high. Where forecasters should be chastised, he goes on, however, is the stubborn refusal to accept an eternal truth. Commodities don't wait for demand to enter outright decline before they crash. Commodities crash when demand growth slows and commodity producers start to die when demand goes flat. McDonald's view is that Oil prices are going to decline and continue to decline because demand is going to flatline. Demand's not going to drop. But he points out that developed countries in the OECD, demand growth peaked a decade ago. And China is getting to the point that its demand is also going to flatline. And so all the growth, if we're going to have growth in oil demand, it's going to have to come from other developing countries, India and Africa. And we don't know. And and that's where, when it comes to these longer-term trends, I don't know. McDonald has his opinion. Other analysts have their their opinion. But we, when we're investing in, in oil or other commodities, it's hard to say which direction 
they will go in terms of there's headwinds, there's tailwinds, and there's some other challenges when it comes to investing in commodity futures. In that, in order to, to make money, you actually have to earn more or commodity prices have to go up more than what everyone else expects. Here's how it was put in Barron's. This is an article titled, If Commodities, if Commodities Day Has Come, This Fund Should Score, is by Louis Brom. He points out, lately commodities have performed so poorly, investors would be forgiven for thinking people no longer need anything to eat, drink, or fuel their cars. Just iPhones and subscriptions to Amazon Prime. In the past five years, the average commodity mutual fund has lost 8% a year, while the S&P 500 has gained 10%. Worse, he goes on, even when commodity prices have gone up, most commodity funds have failed to fully capture those gains. A phenomenon known as contango has been a drag on fund performance. Investors rarely buy commodities directly, instead favoring futures contracts. You can't buy a barrel of oil. You have to buy it through a futures contract. And, as he points out, those, they have their derivatives with expiration dates. Contango occurs when a commodity's future price is above the current or spot price so that every time a contract expires, investors must pay more for a new one. So that the current price for oil right now, the West Texas Intermediate Crude, is about $53. As you go further out and buy, let's say, the March contract, the oil future price in March is around $54.50. And so in order to make money investing in commodities, the spot price in March needs to be above $40.50. If it's below that, you actually may lose money investing in commodities. The article goes on, exacerbating the problem is the fact that index commodity funds buy futures on a published schedule. Astute traders can purchase the fund's contracts ahead of schedule, forcing funds to pay even more and profiting as the fund's buying boost the market. So there's some structural elements that makes it very difficult to make money with commodities. It, the commodities prices have to do better than what everyone is already expecting. Finally, more and more of commodity trading is being done by algorithms. The Commodity Futures Trading Association estimates that 50% of energy-related futures are, are bots, effectively, algorithms. There was a, a quote from another Wall Street Journal article about how commodity funds are having, hedge funds are having, a, they're just not surviving. And they quoted Marwin Yunes, he's chief investment officer of the commodity hedge fund Massar Capital Management. Here's his quote. 20 years ago, if you were to talk to a commodity manager and ask him, why should we invest with you? The typical answer would be, well, I have all these networks of people and call them for any information I need. Today, pointing to proprietary information to be your edge is really dubious. And then Jonathan Goldberg, he is the founder of the energy hedge fund BBL Commodities. He said, trading exclusively on information that everyone has access to, such as government data and inventory reports is a fool's errand. You're not going to be able to click quicker than a machine 
That is like saying you can deliver a package quicker than Amazon. Maybe you could have 10 years ago, but you can't now. So that's the challenge when it comes to commodities. Have no idea what the long-term demand or supply will be. Certainly there's some threats when it comes to climate change, the continual energy transition. You're trading against bots because every in order to outperform with commodities, the prices have to go up more than what others expect, including the algorithms. And that makes it very, very difficult to invest in commodities. But there are some other commodities that what's interesting is oil has only been around since 1859. That's when the well, it's been around much longer than that, but that's when the first oil well was was put in place. So it's not very old. But recently, I had an experience that reminded me how old some commodities really are. Before I share that experience with you, let me pause and share some words from this week's sponsors. We have a brand new sponsor to our show. It's Yahoo Finance. Yahoo's been around for decades. My first email outside of work was a Yahoo email address. But the financial side, I've used on occasion primarily to get data for dividend histories for particular funds or ETFs. But I was pleasantly surprised to get back on Yahoo Finance to see how it's evolved over the years. Now it's really a financial dashboard where you can get an understanding of what's going on with the markets. There are relevant articles from Bloomberg, Reuters, the Associated Press, and the Yahoo Finance team. You can look at the economic events calendar and see which data series are being released that day and what the consensus is. You can see the pulse of the markets at any time by going to Yahoo Finance. In addition, you could see all of your investments in retirement accounts in one place. With Yahoo Finance, you get a consolidated view of multiple accounts. Yahoo Finance serves as a financial hub for your retirement accounts, but also comprehensive financial news and analysis. You need to check out Yahoo Finance, particularly if you haven't been there in a while. Check it out at yahoofinance.com. That's yahoofinance.com. If you've been using Mint to manage your finances, you know they shut down several months ago. Well, let me tell you about the budgeting solution, the financial tracking solution I've been using for the past number of months. It's Monarch Money. Monarch Money is the top-rated all-in-one personal finance app. It gives you a comprehensive view of all your accounts, investments, transactions, and more. You can create custom budgets like I've done. You can set goals, collaborate with your partner. And now you can get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. What I like about Monarch is the ability to customize what I want to see. I have custom budget categories, and then I can go on to the dashboard and see where I'm above trend on some of my spending. I especially like that Monarch will never sell your data to third parties or show you ads. After trying Monarch myself, I understand why it's the top-rated personal finance app. And right now, get an extended 30-day free trial when you go to monarchmoney.com David. That's M-O-N-A-R-C-H-M-O-N-E-Y dot com slash David for your extended 30-day free trial. LePro and I have gotten to, to know one of the servers here at the hotel we're staying in Tulum, Mexico. This is our t- second time here. His name's Ubaldo. And he's from Chilub. This is a Mayan village 
about 60 miles from here, 90 kilometers. It takes two hours to drive because the road has so many potholes, particularly as you get close to his village, which is just on the other side of Quintana Roo in the Yucatan. He asked us a week or so ago, what are you doing Saturday? And we said, well, I don't know. We're on, <laughs> on vacation. Who knows? And he invited us. He said, I'm the best man at my friend's wedding. I would love you to come to, to my village and participate in the festivities. And I, I assumed he was just being nice, but he, he was insistent. He really wanted us to come. So we went. We drove the two hours. We got there early evening. We, we were there. The mass Catholic mass had just gotten over. They were coming out of the church, and they invited us to attend the Mayan wedding ceremony, sort of the private ceremony that happens after the Catholic wedding. Now, this is a, a, a custom that's been going on for many, many years, and, and it's sort of falling by the wayside. Oftentimes, the, the Maya, they just have the Catholic Mass and go right into the reception, but this time they were having this traditional ceremony where the Mayan elders pray for, bless, and counsel the married couple. It took place in a traditional Mayan thatched roof house, oval-shaped house made of post, had a fire in the corner with a pot cooking, a pot of something, hammocks hanging, just a traditional Yucatec Mayan residence. This was the house of the groom. There was a table set up in the middle of the, of the house, and the close family members sat in a circle. The table had a statue of the Virgin Mary, a candle burning, and the couple sat in front of the table, and the, the elder spoke in Mayan. I don't know what he said, but he, he prayed for, blessed, and counseled them. The, everyone was dressed in their best. So many of the women wore traditional Mayan dresses, what are known as ipiles. They're embroidered with colored flowers. The men wore guayaberas. And at one point in the ceremony... There was a polished half shell of coconut. It was covered with some type of herb. And Ubaldo took off the herb and, and pulled out a handful of cocoa beans. And he started counting them. There were 120 beans. And he divided them up and gave them to the family members. And later I asked him, well, what, what was going on there? And he said this was to pay them for being witnesses at this ceremony. Cocoa beans. Now, I've, I've been in Yucatan over several decades, numerous times, and there's not, they, you don't, don't grow cocoa in the Yucatan, although they have in the past. Recently, they found evidence of, or they found some cocoa trees down in some of the cenotes or sinkholes. I was fascinated that they use cocoa beans for payment in this ceremony. There's an article by Joanne P. Barron titled Making Money in Mesoamerica, Currency Production and Procurement in Classical Maya Financial System. And really interesting article, and it talked about how cocoa beans were essentially currencies. And they started out as just fermented cocoa beans are dried, they're toasted, they're grinded, and they're agitated in water. They make this frothy, chocolate-lit drink. It's a ceremonial drink for weddings for thousands of years. We had some at the ceremony. 
after toward the end they brought pan dulce and we drank this this chocolate water essentially but it's excellent i've had it before in in chiapas but she says in this article joanne the, the value of cocoa in exchange was tied to their desirability in the production of this chocolate drink Later, she, and she did a study, and they looked at murals that showed sacks numbered with how many cocoa beans were in it. In other words, it was used as payment to obligations of overlords. Eventually, it, it's, it's rare. It was rare because, she writes, the cacao tree is quite finicky and can only be grown intensively in deep alluvial soils of river valleys where subsoil is consistently moist. And it also requires high temperatures, over 90% humidity, heavy rainfall, and protection from sun and wind. And so the cocoa bean is a commodity. You can still buy commodity futures, but this has been a commodity, unlike oil, that's been around for thousands of years. In fact, they've even found clay cocoa beans, sort of counterfeit cocoa beans that were used in terms of, of money, essentially, currency, was what cocoa beans were used for in terms of the Maya. Now, I looked at the value uh, of cocoa futures. Right now, well, the March contract futures $2,200 for a metric ton of cocoa beans. In 1979, it sold for over 4000 It bottomed at $700 in 2001. And then it peaked again at around $3,000 for a metric ton of cocoa beans. This is the futures contract in 2011. And since it sold off, and you look at the chart of cocoa beans, it's like, how would I invest in that and know whether it would make money or not? But it's been around thousands of years. Afterwards, after the cocoa beans, Ubaldo pulled out gold, gold jewelry, Earrings, charms, bracelets, and a necklace. These were gifts from the bride and groom's family. Gold. The, the Mayan women wear gold chain around the neck. Oftentimes, they'll have some type of, of charm on it. But for centuries, I guess, these gifts of gold were given to brides as, as a store of value, of something that could be sold in times of need, if your child gets sick or something along those lines. What I found fascinating, when I looked at the price of gold, it was $600 in 1979. That was a, essentially a peak for that epica, epic. I've been in Spain, I've been in Mexico too long, that, that epic. And then it fell to 2001. In 2001, it fell to $260. It peaked again at $1,900 in 2011. And now... It's $1,200. If you look at the chart and you, and you lay the gold chart over the cocoa bean chart, very similar pattern because commodities tend to trade in groups. But gold's the same way. How do you predict what gold will do? It, it's, we, I own gold. I own gold coins. But I know as little about whether gold will rise in price as I do cocoa beans or I do oil. The benefit of gold is I'm not invested in a futures contract. And so I don't have this situation of contango that we talked about. 
There was a fascinating article this week in Barron's, or last week. It's called, It's Time to Own Gold. And they asked James Grant of Grant's Interest Rate Observer and Daniel Weiner, who's co-founder of the Advisors Investments, to editor and he's editor of Independent Advisor for Vanguard Investors. They asked them for their most succinct arguments for gold in the case of Jim Grant and against gold in the case of Dan Weiner. And it, it was fascinating because Jim Grant, here's what he writes. He, said, he writes, gold is an investment in disorder, not a hedge against inflation. Gold is scarce malleable, ductile, beautiful, indestructible. Gold is a monetary asset, not a credit instrument. It is cash, not a promise to pay. It is final payment itself. Gold competes with currency and the promises to pay currency. Gold, which has probably never traded at zero, not in millennia, is a store of value. Gold explains itself. One look tells you it's valuable. You don't need a computer server, electrical outlet, or instruction manual. That was, a, that was a dig at Bitcoin, cryptocurrencies, which are crashing just like commodities have been. Because again, Bitcoin, you do need a server. And to some extent, you need an instruction manual to figure out how to invest in cryptocurrencies. But again, their value is based on their scarcity and what investors are willing to pay. Jim Grant goes on, gold is out of favor. While gold yields nothing, it is nonetheless out yields $7 trillion of notes and bonds worldwide that a decade after Lehman still yield less than nothing. These would be bonds that have negative interest rates. And he said gold's price is the reciprocal of the world's faith in central banks. And later he says, "If, if you think something might not be right with the world, in terms of the dominance of central banks, perhaps you should own some gold. Dan Weiner, on the other hand, says that other than the standard arguments, it pays no interest, it costs money to store it, it has no intrinsic value, etc. I have always been baffled by this idea that gold is an inflation hedge. In January 1980, if you look at inflation-adjusted prices, gold was at $2,820. Today, it's at, what, $1,200 or $1,300 an ounce. How is that inflation protection? Notice the date he chose, January 1980. That's when I gave those gold prices. That's when it peaked. And if you calculate it from then, you're right. Gold has not outpaced inflation. But if you move back seven years to 1973, gold was selling at $106. Now it's $1,200. If gold had just tracked the consumer price index or inflation between 1973 and today, it would be worth $663 per ounce. It's worth double that. It's done better than inflation. But not always. He goes on. I know there have been periods when gold prices have outperformed. I also know there have been periods where it completely underperforms. It's really an asset whose price is determined primarily by a bunch of traders and psychology. That's true. That's what determines commodity prices oftentimes. That's, what, that's basically what determines oil prices 
and cocoa bean prices by traders and human psychology. He goes on, I get all that, but as an investor, I don't buy it. And the more the proponents of gold are wrong, the louder they yell. Peter Schiff said gold would hit $5,000 an ounce. Now, we talked about Peter Schiff in episode 215 as a dollar collapse coming. But those are the two arguments, succinct arguments on whether to own gold and by extension, other commodities. And I'm conflicted. I own gold as a hedge, as a protection. It's clearly a speculation. And it's determined by traders and psychology. But it's been around for thousands of years. The Maya use gold as a store of value as they give gifts to newlyweds to, to be able to sell when in a time of need. There's the protection there. But there's speculations. Their price depends on what investors are willing to pay today, months from now, and even years from now. And having some speculations like that, I think, makes sense. I prefer to own physical gold rather than invest in the futures market. But most of my investing are in what are cash flow generating investments, where there's income, there's interest income, there's dividends from corporate profits in terms of stocks, and the cash flow grows over time. That's the workhorse of our investment portfolio, cash flow. Because you can value it. It does have intrinsic value. But I don't ignore some of these other speculations as a protection, as a hedge. But it can't be the workhorse of your portfolio. The other asset I have in conclusion is an attention asset. It's a trust I've earned from you as listeners. For almost five years, I produced a podcast most weeks for free. Thank you for showing up. I, at the meetup I had in New York a few weeks ago, or I guess it's been a month now, for Money for the Rest of Us Plus, somebody asked me, how can we support the show? And I said, tell someone else about it. That's how podcasts grow. People tell. So if you have a friend, tell them about my podcast, please. And I would appreciate that. But this is an attention asset. Having put time in and built your trust It's a valuable asset I own, and I very much appreciate you listening to this and other episodes and sharing it with others. That's episode 232. Is it time to invest in commodities? We never know when it's time to invest in commodities because it's so difficult to figure out what the price will be. There isn't a way to value it. So there is always never a good time and never a bad time to invest in commodities because we'd never know if it's overvalued or undervalued, because there is no intrinsic value. We just have psychology, we have traders, and we do have supply and demand for some of the commodities, but even then it's hard to figure out what those long-term trends will be. You can get show notes at moneyfortherestofus.com. While you're there, please sign up for my free insider's guide, and I'll email you weekly with the links to that week's episode, as well as a a, an article or an essay I write just to email subscribers. So please join at, at moneyfortherestofus.com. Everything I've shared with you in this episode has been for general education. I'm not considered your specific 
risk situation. I'm not provided investment advice. Just general education on money, investing, and the economy. Have a great week.